While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Welcome to Overdue. This is a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Andrew. That guy's Craig. We want to take a, a minute out of our out of our busy podcasting schedule to tell you about an issue that's very near and dear to our hearts, and that issue is dog literacy. And I'm going to let Craig tell you all about it. Craig, I dog literacy. I didn't know we were doing the show yet. You're we're just, doing it. You just like packed me in the car and drove away <laughs> what just happened it is late you you want to get the episode out i understand um dog so, literacy dog literacy so i saw a program that the evanston public library from evanston illinois tweeted out where they were teaching dogs to read sort of okay what uh, what method were they using? Because there are a lot of different ones, and scholars can't agree on the one that is the most effective. Well, they're using something nobody's ever tried before, little kids. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so the way to get your dog to read is to train your dog to become a therapy dog. Okay. And then you bring it into a library, and then a young reader practices reading to the dog. And mm-hmm. that's good because the kids read at the at like a reading level maybe just above the dog so they're not like challenging the dog <laughs> too early you're reading at a 27 dog years reading level yeah and uh run spot run is offensive so they don't read that one yeah i mean it's there's been some debate because you know some people don't want to censor it they say you know it's a product of its time whatever and then some people are really like they just think that the, the fact that they make spot run and everybody's looking at them they just they find that objectifying and i I mean i can see their point yeah i've read some literature on that as well and also it's some cultures spot is like derogatory okay because they can't like some dogs just have spots like that's just a thing <laughs> no seriously uh this is the tail wagon tutors program which okay. is a real thing mm-hmm. from Therapy Dogs International uh, that I heard about on the internet, and I thought it was super cool, so I wanted to talk about it on the show. And that's really all it is. It's like dogs go into libraries, and you can reserve a time for and your kids. kids read to them. And the whole thing is that dog these dogs are non-judgmental, <laughs> so the kids can like practice in you know the safety of being with a cool puppy. But what if the kids don't know the words? Like the dogs aren't going to be able to help. Well, they're, no, they're they're not supposed. <laughs> I don't know, kid. Seems like he doesn't like that green eggs and ham. I don't think he's ever going to come around. <laughs> I mean, there's a handler there for the dog. Who knows if they can read? I don't. They might just. What like about? Dogs. Do they have a handler for the kids too? Or well, like... the parents I think are allowed to be there. Okay. And then if, if so, some of the kids pick books that they think the dogs will like. Uh, I don't know what those like books John are. Grisham, John Grisham books. <laughs> 
like novelizations of Zelda games or something. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. dogs love oh, Now I'm trying to think of an author who we could make like a dog pun with their name. Keep thinking on that one because I'm no, not. I'm going to I'm going to think about it. OK. Uh, so it sounds like it's a cool thing. And I was surprised to find out that it wasn't just like a person at that one library had a cool idea, but it's actually through a larger therapy dogs organization, which is neat. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you like book it for 30 minutes and then you only have to read for 20 and then your kid can just play with a dog for 10 minutes, which is kind of cool. It's kind of like those cat cafes where you just go and it's a cafe, but also there's a cat there. Uh-huh. Cormac McBark, Barky. No, I'll try some more. I'll keep trying. That's what we're sticking with. Uh, when we're not talking about dogs on this show, we are talking about books that you've been meaning to read. And each week, one of us reads a book and talks to the other person about it. Andrew, what did you read this week? Um, I read A Boy and His Dog by Harlan Ellison. I didn't plan that open. Did you think that I'd plan that? Because I, I didn't, didn't think that you'd planned it, but I knew that we had, like, when you mentioned that you wanted to talk about dog reading, <laughs> I figured there would be some good synergy there between your dog story and my dog story. Cool. Well, that worked out. Moving yeah, on. Yeah, it was great. Uh, let's first talk about Harlan Ellison, who is as weird an author as I think we've talked about in a while. Yeah, he seems like a guy we could just... If we did a different show where we just talked about weird authors, he would be like episode one. <laughs> he's he's persnickety. He's a persnickety guy. What is his... He self-described... Man, I have so many notes on him. Oh, do you want... um? Well, do you want the list of jobs that he had by age eighteen? We can talk about that also. Uh, The most contentious person on earth. Oh, that's what he's called himself. Is a way he describe has ever described himself, and yeah, he's he's so contentious that I think if he heard that we did a podcast about him, he would probably listen to it, take issue with it, and then hound us until he died or we did. And I'm not sure which one would happen first. (laughs) He does, and I've read him in a number of interviews say that he he likes to be en courant which is a, a french way to say he knows what's going on i guess he knows like, what's cool with the kids yeah so i think if he hasn't listened to a podcast before but he heard that someone spent podcast time on him yeah he would get on that just to tell us how dumb it is He'd be like uh, hey don't put me on blast i'm on fleek i'm harlan ellison and i know all the cool teen slang hashtag swag <laughs> Oh, Andrew. He was born in 1934, uh, <laughs> primarily known as a speculative fiction writer. Uh, he's from Cleveland, which I think is is neat, I well, guess. Well, then he Something, moved to, Something's from Cleveland. Yeah, he moved to somewhere called Painesville, Ohio, which sounds like where a wrestler might come from. Or like just hailing like a, from Painesville, Ohio. Or just the thing that anybody would call any town in Ohio that they <laughs> were from. I'm from Ohio, guys. It's cool. I can I can say that. I know. I like that you have Ohio and New Jersey on lockdown. I know. Like, I had two of the most make fun of states. <laughs> <laughs> so he, uh, yeah, he said he was raised in, born in Cleveland, raised a little bit in Painesville, and then moved back in Cleveland in 49 after his father passed away. And then he ran away from home a lot, apparently. And this is his <laughs> self-described list of things that he did for work. 
He was a tuna fisherman off the coast of Galveston, an itinerant crop picker in New Orleans, a hired gun for a wealthy neurotic, nitroglycerin truck driver in North Carolina, short order cook, cab driver, lithographer, book salesman, floor walker in an apartment store, door-to-door brush salesman, and as a youngster, an actor in several productions at the Cleveland Playhouse. I feel like that's not what you end that list with if you're writing a list. <laughs> he kind of like he like Benjamin buttoned that list. Whatever. I'm not I'm not like Mr. Wikipedia. I don't know. I'm not Jimmy Wales. I don't know how to write a Wikipedia. In the 50s he decided to write about youth gangs, so he joined a street gang in Red Hook, Brooklyn under the alias Phil Cheech Beldone. <laughs> 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 He, uh, I feel like if if I ever met Harlan Ellison and he didn't want to punch me in the face because of this podcast, he would, everything he said, I would have to go, come on. Yeah, it's a little, it's all a little uh, fantastical, I guess. Which suits his writing, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, if, if he were less, if he were less... I mean, the word that comes to mind is absurd. If he were, but maybe like if he were less larger than life in all of his current dealings, I would, Uh I would be less inclined to believe him, but he's done enough stuff after 18 that I think that all that stuff probably actually happened. So, okay, let's swap some Harlan Ellison stories. My favorite one. And I mean, we're going to talk, we're going to talk some about Star Trek later, of course. My favorite one is that he was expelled from Ohio State University for uh, hitting a professor uh-huh. who said he was a bad writer, mm-hmm. and then he proceeded to send that professor everything that he published for the next two decades. <laughs> that's pretty good. That's that's the kind of thing, except for the hitting him thing, that's what I can get behind. The kind I mean, of that's, why, that's why you... you I don't know. That's what you base a movie off of or something like yeah. Pretty Woman 2. Wait. She's trying to become a novelist. <laughs> and she just sends her she sends the hardback copy of her New York Times best-selling book and on the inside it says to Professor Dinkelman, big mistake, huge. <laughs> Love Pretty Woman. Also, I've adopted the moniker P- Pretty Woman. <laughs> Pretty Woman 2 is my Twitter handle. Pretty Woman 2. Because Pretty Woman was already taken by somebody. <laughs> yeah, so he, he he has kind of a history of hitting people, I guess. Like, he has a couple other, so not quite celebrity run-ins, but public run-ins, where in the 80s, at uh, the Nebula Awards banquet, he, according to witnesses, slapped author and critic Charles Platt. <laughs> Uh, over something of trivial consequence. Ellison later apologized to him, sort of, apparently in a personal letter. They signed some sort of non-aggression pact that also included them never talking about it or having contact with one another ever again. And yet, as recently as 1993, people said that uh, at book conventions where there were a bunch of his fans, he once said about charles platt i punched behind that mother effer (laughs) i suppose that means that he either like didn't really do it but is kind of proud that he got the chance or he literally punched the guy through the face i'm not sure what he's boasting about i hear punch behind and i hear i punched him in the back of the neck (laughs) 
I think Harlan Ellison only ever kind of apologizes to people. Yeah, so did I you, think it's really difficult to get an actual apology out of him. Did you read that story about Connie Willis? Yes. Oh. Why don't you recount it for everybody? Okay, so this is a big, like, let's take this author with a grain of salt now. In 2006, um, this was at the Hugo Awards, right? I believe uh, there was an award ceremony. Connie Willis is a uh, respected sci-fi writer who wrote To Say Nothing of the Dog is probably one of her biggest works. Mm-hmm. We should probably read her for the show because I actually don't know her work. And he allegedly touched her breast like during uh, you know some sort of shtick where he was maybe like being made fun of for being immature even though he was you know in his 70s. Not quite. Hilarious, Harlan. So I watched the video of it. Hilarious. There's a video of it on YouTube. Who knows what they're supposed to be doing because it's really unclear. He comes up and she starts kind of teasing him for being infantile. And she asks him if he's going to behave. And so he puts the entire microphone in his mouth. And everyone gets a big laugh. And then he like picks up a hammer vaguely threateningly. And to my point was why was there a hammer on the podium? That didn't make any sense. Uh, and then as she kind of for the bit yeah for the bit in service of the bit and then as she kind of leans in and she seems like it's part of the shtick and then she kind of leans in to say something to him and he just puts his hand on her on her breast briefly and to hear him tell it it was like part of the joke of him being a baby and you can tell that she's like Harlan Ellison everyone and then she leaves so I don't know. He wrote like an apology where he maybe apologized for it, but was mad that people were upset about it. I don't, I don't know, man. Yeah. Cause he's like, I don't know that it's something about the tone of the apology brings kind of hollow. Okay. So here, here's the, here's the first one. Um, nonetheless, despite my only becoming aware of this brouhaha, right this moment, 12 noon LA time, Tuesday the 29th, three days after the digital spasm that seems to be an uproar, you are absolutely right, this is in all caps, it is unconscionable for a man to grab a woman's breast without her explicit permission. To do otherwise is to go way over the line in terms of invasion of someone's personal space, it is crude behavior at best, and actionable behavior at worst. When George W. Bush massaged the back of the neck of that female foreign dignitary, we were all justly appalled. For me to grab Connie's breast is inexcusable, indefensible, gauche, and properly offensive to any observers of those who heard of it later. Um, seems, which I mean, it seems like he's, he's like trying to he's send up all the, the right things. Yeah, but he's doing it in all caps, like sending up the very idea of the apology. I think. I don't part, know. I don't know. It's a weird. It's a weird thing. Yeah. He okay. So like, well, we should get onto the story, and I'm sure there will be other reasons to talk about him. You want to save the Star Trek stuff? No, I th- I think we'll just talk about it now. The the um the only other exposure I've had to Harlan Ellison that I didn't even know that I had had, or I mean the name was familiar, but I I didn't immediately recognize it. Is he wrote an episode of the original Star Trek series, um, The City on the Edge of Forever? And for those of you who are not familiar, um, that is the episode where um. Kirk and Spock and I think McCoy. It's it's all McCoy's time. fault. It's all McCoy's fault. Right. Yeah. They they go back to um, like as World War Two is brewing, and there is this woman who in this story is like vital to getting America into the war. But like it only happens because she gets like hit by a car. 
so yeah she's a super pacifist mm-hmm. and the implication oh right 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 yeah yeah so there there's a whole host of weird implications of this story where like they have to go back in time and make sure this woman dies so that world war ii goes the right way but kirk like falls in love with her yeah and so it's really hard to and it's i mean it's the best episode of the original star trek series it's Written, a really it's a what really year nice is that, Andrew? late um, 60s it was 67 i believe if it was the first season of of star trek so the whole like anti-war thing is actually you know roddenberry's quoted as saying yes that was totally oh yeah you know, no we knew a, what in, we were in doing the, there. In, in the original series there's a ton of um cold war post-world war ii commentary like there's a there's another episode called the doomsday machine that's basically about the bomb <laughs> Yeah, well, but not really. It's ac- it's actually about a giant, unstoppable weapon that is destroying everything. And why did we create this? Now it's totally out of our control. <laughs> yeah, of course. Um. So yeah, that that was definitely intentional, but but it was contentious because Roddenberry changed stuff about it. Gene Roddenberry, the guy who created Star Trek, yeah, and was the creative force behind it especially the original series was the biggest thing that he was involved in um and he like he got rid of some subplot i guess where there was like drug dealing happening happening on the enterprise which like if you don't know about gene roddenberry's vision of the future like it's very like humanity has kind of solved all of its issues and now we're out exploring because we fixed all of our problems like we wouldn't be drug dealing because I don't know, we're too good for that now or something? Well, that's why all the other races exist, is to to have those conflicts come up. Right, because and, like and for, if, if you, you know. go to the next generation, like there a part of the writer's Bible for that series, like the original um the first couple seasons of it, was a declaration by Roddenberry that none of the main characters could could ever be in conflict with each other. Interesting. Which which other like better writers got around in later seasons <laughs> because that is super boring. But like that's that's the kind of future he he envisions. Like it's very optimistic, and so I can totally see why he would cut a subplot like that. And yet the script that Ellison wrote won an award, and then the episode which had the changes from Roddenberry also won an right. award, which is kind of neat. I, I like that as a, as a weird bit of trivia. Yeah. The big, I mean, the big thing about the, uh, about the changes, like Ellison didn't agree with them. Usually when somebody who he's working with makes so many changes to his work that he hates it. Oh yeah. He will use the pseudonym, uh, cord Wainer bird. Uh-huh. And Roddenberry would not change the name on the episode. Well, well I read, um, conflicting reports yeah actually. yeah one yeah. one source said that ellison was cool with it one source said that ron barry wouldn't change it so i'm not sure where the truth actually lies on that um yeah, yeah I, I, lo- I looked around for a while and i couldn't find any like consensus on it but but uh yeah he's a he's a he's a guy with the history he's got a big history i don't know he's an interesting interesting fella uh-huh um, but anyway, Certainly. that's, I mean, I believe that episode of Star Trek's on Netflix. Go watch it. It's pretty good. I've never seen it. So, and, um, I, I like Star it. Trek, the original series is all made to, to kind of stand alone. So if you know who the characters are at all, you can pretty much jump into any episode and be okay. Good. But, um, yeah, classic sci-fi, whatever. Um, is there anything else? 
there's like little things like he had a run in with Sinatra where Sinatra insulted his boots. And this is like a famous Esquire article, apparently. <laughs> and uh, the the quote that I love from the writer of the article, <clears throat> Sinatra probably forgot about it at once, but Ellison will remember it all his life. He doesn't forget about stuff. Well, and I read an, another interview with him where he took out the boots that he was wearing. <laughs> And like sh- he had saved them and was showing them off. Jeez. Well, like uh, so, so, like the city, city on the edge of forever thing. In two thousand nine, Ellison sued CBS. Oh come asking on! Asking for money, like off of the merchandising and stuff around the original series and that episode in particular. Two thousand nine. He settled out of court with James Cameron over Terminator, apparently. Mm-hmm. Because he wrote an Outer Limits episode where a guy traveled back in time and he was a soldier. And the first couple minutes are, you know, similar in setup, I guess. And that becomes something else. But he still got a bunch of money. (laughs) And then in uh, last thing, I think this will be the last thing. Well, two two last things. One, I just thought it was kind of... of, uh, I don't know. It, it matches with the other stuff that we have talked about. Uh, he married his third wife for seven weeks and his fourth wife for eight months. And then his fifth wife he's been with for like 27 years yeah, or something. Right. But I, I mean, based on what we've talked about about this guy, I could totally see him being married to somebody for seven weeks. Yeah. Um, just just long enough to get uncomfortable. You know how people talk People talk about they use uh, Britney Spears' marriage as like a, a barometer for, <laughs> for oh, how well yeah, the relationship yeah. is going? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think the Ellison scale needs to be another another scale on that uh, on that chart. Um, and then there is this there's a third volume of like the sci fi story collection that he was supposed to have edited and released uh, the last dangerous visions. OK, um, it was originally slated for release in 1973 still hasn't come out just because he got like too busy or something. Apparently, as recently as like the mid two thousands, he was saying that he still wanted to get it out, but it was it it contains the work of about one hundred fifty different writers, and a lot of those writers have died in the intervening like forty years. Interesting. So that's that's cool. Look for look for that to be published sometime. Never. Well, he did have a stroke last fall. He seems to be doing okay. The interview I read with him after that had happened, he was still just as contentious. <laughs> He was just wasn't moving as fast. So who maybe someone will pick up that mantle in, in the near future. Yeah, but um, I mean, long story short, Harlan Ellison has so much stuff. Like, I don't know if you look at the look at the Wikipedia article article for like Hemingway. And I don't think you'll see this much stuff. <laughs> Well, fewer itemized and this there's like a when itemized a, feuds yeah <laughs> when you have a whole section of your wikipedia biography dedicated to feuds and then you fall down a rabbit hole of like fact checking those feuds on fan websites for yeah, writers like who don't want to have their yeah. own websites super weird Webderlands. yeah go to the Webderlands. it's a it's a website harlan ellison's official website which was created i believe in 1995 and doesn't look like it's been redesigned since then yeah it hasn't been updated since 2007 i don't think anyway 2012 uh, actually actually 
Sorry, I wasn't giving it enough credit. Actually. Andrew, what book you read A Boy and His Dog? Okay, A Boy and His Dog is a short story. Okay. That is part of the if you if you want to read it, you'll want to buy the collection The Beast That Shouted Love at the Heart of the World. That's a great name for anything. It's a neat it's a neat name. It's published in nineteen sixty nine. Um in the years since it's you know, he's expanded upon it a little bit. There's actually a note um preceding the story where he says this is just a chunk of a novel that i've been working on and it's basically done but this is what i'm showing you right now Hmm. um so it's uh yeah it was published in 1969 it's a it's a story about a i don't know a dystopian future okay which sounds cliche now but in 1969 it was still all the rage dystopian or post-apocalyptic oh no not not dystopian it was post-apocalyptic just doing okay. doing a real good job of talking words with you got distracted my by mouth. how rambunctious Harlan Ellison was. He's very rambunctious. <laughs> yeah, post-apocalyptic. Um, it's a it's an alternate timeline where I believe that the, the point of divergence was uh, the assassination of Kennedy in this particular universe that did not happen. Okay. And so apparently instead of the space race, we got this this other thing where our scientists instead focused on making robots and also telepathic animals. <laughs> so like dogs that could teach you to read. Yeah, dogs that could teach you to read. So there's this kid, I think he's supposed to be 15. His name is Vic. Um, and he is on the surface of this world, which has been, I mean, there, there was a third world war, which is a whole nother cliche upon itself. Um, unto itself. That's, I mean, that's, but when he's writing, right. When was this written? This, in 1969, as I've said, I think about a hundred times. Sorry. No, it's okay. Fine. I'm just, I'm more making fun of how many times that I've repeated that one fact about this book. Interesting. Um, no, I, so mean, I, it's, I it's one of those. That's... It's one of those cases, and we've talked about this a bunch of times. Where where if somebody writing about a cliche before it becomes a cliche can still feel fresh, even if it's not. And so, so one of the interesting things about reading this story is how he chooses to dole out information, like a movie version of this of this story. And there was a movie version, but I mean, like a modern movie version of this book would start with a giant info dump. Oh, it would need to where you have yeah. like Samuel L. Jackson or something like narrating this whole thing about about how nukes went off and there are telepathic dogs and there are people who live <laughs> under the earth still, but there are also people who rove the surface looking for food and sex wherever they can get it. Whoa. And it would be just like a this, turn. this big like two minute and 47 second montage that would have to happen before anything else could happen. But in the story itself, he, you know, you learn facts kind of one at a time. And you infer things and you and you slowly get a sense of place and of like difference. Like what what you recognize it as a world that may once have been part of your world, but definitely it is not like there are common reference points, but mostly it's in like a blown up YMCA or something. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. What does Vic how much of what happened before does Vic know like is are you primarily like oh I heard about this in apocalypse school or is it I mean there is no school he didn't have parents like it's it's a thing that he knows about because his telepathic dog whose name is blood um, taught him 
a lot of stuff and taught him to read. This Man, is... I was so mad at Harlan Ellison before <laughs> because of like just stuff he's done. But then but he, he named... made a telepathic dog named Blood. So oh, like that's God. cool. That's pretty. That's pretty sweet, right? All right, <laughs> it is pretty sweet. Here's my dog. Well, here's my dog named Blood, and check it out. He can read your mind. <laughs> <laughs> so Vic is kind of a loner on this on the surface where it's very like mad maxi like you have the loners like your mad maxes and your vicks <laughs> and then you have your and then you have your gangs who all like control specific elements of this society like some people control the power plant and this one particular gang controls like the movie house okay <laughs> and movie houses are, are generally um, held to be like safe spaces where people can come and uh, masturbate to Whoa. porn. Whoa. Which is where Vic and Blood go. They go to see a uh, quote unquote beaver flick. Whoa. In a movie theater. And Blood, I mean, obviously it's mostly guys masturbating in there. But Blood is like, hey, one of these, one of these is a girl. And, Whoa. And Vic is like whoa a girl because i like to have sex and i haven't had sex in a while so where's this girl how old is vic about 15 15 16 cool um and it's like this is this is like checkpoint the first in this book is like vic just thinks about raping women as if it is no big deal like he actually uses the word rape. It's not just that he is raping people, but that he thinks rape to himself. In- interesting. It's kind of like a, a banality of evil thing. Like that's how nonchalant it is because before you get into, you know, before, before he starts thinking like that, you're, you've been in his head in a while and you realize that he is living in a world that is awful. <laughs> well, and up until that point, are you feeling that he also is awful? Yes and no. Mostly no, I guess, because I don't know, like he he seems like rough and tumble, but you assume that because you're in his head that he's the protagonist and therefore you must be able to root for him. Like, like there's a, there's an assumption that you make as a reader that he, oh, we, that yeah. he takes just long enough to challenge that you kind of get an, an, an image or at least I kind of got an image of him in my head. Well, yeah. And it's like, it's a, a boy and his dog is, is such a benign image. Right. And, and if it's not benign, it is like, Tintin heroic, you know, <laughs> like it is either the picture of innocence or the picture of like mid twentieth century lassie, you, you know. Like right. Well, I mean, kids. like, like think of think of Mad Max. Like you've got this guy who is not a good dude. Yeah. But in the world that he's living in, like comparatively, he's an okay dude. Sure. And that's. Uh-huh. You say sure, like you're not on board with the point that I'm making. No, no, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> I actually am. I was in the middle of thinking about how similar this sounds 
to some of our Cormac McCarthy discussion from a couple weeks ago. Well, yeah, let's not let's not revisit that. <laughs> um, <laughs> he he, I mean, he can read, which is which is as he points out a thing that he did not need to learn how to do. Like blood, okay. blood taught him how to do that. So one gets through that kind of thing the impression that he is more thoughtful than the people he's surrounded by. And you don't need to be super thoughtful to be more thoughtful than these people. <laughs> okay. But like he's, he's, he's not virtuous, but he is perhaps one of the less evil people in this surface world where you need to be evil and ruthless to survive at all. If that makes okay. sense. Yeah. 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 And so he, thanks to his dog. Yes. And so he and he and blood start following this girl. Um, there is, there are these underground communities called down unders, all one word um, where, I mean, this is, this is where the regular people live, like the, the middle and upper middle class people who, the people who have things in this world live underground because that's what you need to do because everything else is irradiated. So cool. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. But every once in a while you'll get somebody who will come up, C U M U P again, all one word. They will come up to the surface just to see how the other half lives, I guess like some kind of morbid fascination kind of thing. In the same way, like in I'm trying to think of, a good comparison there's like is there may i suggest the movie mad max is there any is there anything only point of comparison i don't know i saw mad max a couple weeks ago it's all post-apocalyptic i don't know i'm feeling the the inverse of it in something like futurama where it's like there's all the people who live underground and you could go down there and like, whoa, this is super weird. I want to get out of here, but I'm glad I saw it because isn't that so strange? <laughs> yeah, yeah, kind of. Or like circus kind of, your circus freak show idea, right? Yeah, I, I, I think the Futurama example is maybe a little more apt because it's a whole it's a whole other world that it's you're seeing. Ecosystem. It's it's not yeah. just like individual people who have been taken from that world or are being shown you, they are being shown to you like, absent any other context yeah 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 yeah. and that's not what's going on here so let's go vacation in horrible land yeah that's let's what you're go saying. up to the okay. the porn movie theater and sit in this room where all these guys are jerking off to this movie this are there all the movie. movies pre-war uh yes okay so they're not manufacturing new movies I don't know that that is true or not, but the ones that these people are watching are are pre pre World War Three is what okay. we mean by pre war here. I think, yeah, mostly. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so Vic and Blood are following her. They corner her in a YMCA, like a sh- the shell of a YMCA that she is changing in because she's going to mm-hmm. go back down to the down under. Okay, and he is like, okay, let's 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 do it. I'm just going to rape you now. And, and he has this moment where he wants to like talk to her first. And he's like, Whoa, I have never felt this way before. So I guess in that way, he's like any 15 year old. (laughs) Oh no, that's no, that's not, that's not true. In the sense that like talking to a girl is, you don't know what to do. 
Yeah, I mean, he doesn't know what to say. Now, he is he has obviously done a lot of awful stuff to other girls. So in that in that way, he is totally uninnocent. But in the way that he doesn't know what to talk to her about is he is he's very 15. OK, you know? um, her name is Quilla June. And they I don't know <laughs> where to go. I guess I'll just run through the plot. So they, they're in this YMCA. Blood comes in, says, hey, we're surrounded by people who must also have realized that this was a girl. Obviously, you know, women are not a thing that happens a lot in the society and everybody just wants to get what they can get while the getting's good. Okay. Um, so Vic and blood try to fight them off for a bit. And then there's, they say, Hey, what if we burn the building down, but we hid in this old boiler. So they couldn't find us. And they thought we just died in the fire. So they do that. And while they're hiding out in that boiler, Vic and Quilla June have sex a lot. And the first time, it is pretty rapey, and then I guess she gets into it later and no. is asking him to to have sex with her. Okay. Which is a very, like, problematic sort of little arc, but I guess this is so removed from our own context that it's, I don't know, You, I, I feel like you can't necessarily judge Ellison based on it. Does that make sense? Because I, I, I feel like it's a very specific sleazy type of fantasy where the girl really wants it, even though she doesn't know, you know? Yeah, I'll give I'll give him the benefit of the doubt for now in you saying that, you know, he's portraying this terrible future. How about that? Yeah. So they how, how is blood's moral compass? Can you get like how does how does this dog feel about the world? They are normally just very, very into surviving. And they they both know, even though they fight sometimes, they both know that they need each other to survive. Like, blood cannot... There's some weird side effect of the telepathy thing where the dogs lose the ability to, like, hunt for themselves or something. I'm not sure what the exact mechanics of that are, except that it's necessary for the plot, so it happens. <laughs> <laughs> something about, like, binding it removing certain parts of the brain that are instinctual maybe i don't yeah, know so let's, yeah let's let's just say it's that <laughs> and and vic knows that he needs blood to like educate him and like sniff things out for him and tell him what's what so they they know that they need each other and they they are motivated primarily by survival like that's their that's their deal like morality doesn't enter into it yeah yeah um so okay they they get away from this gang like they they successfully trick the gang quilla june smacks vic over the head with the butt of a gun and runs away back to the down under but she leaves like her access card and blood is like well this is kind of did you do you do you think this is kind of maybe suspicious maybe like like maybe not everything is as it seems and vic is like well that girl hit me and i'm gonna go hit her (laughs) no so he goes down to the down under and it turns out that the whole time she was bait, like they, you know, because of the radiation, they're having trouble reproducing. Um, most of the babies that are being born are girls. And mm. so they basically brought him down to stud is the, okay. is the exact word that's used. He's super happy about this for like a second. 
Okay. But it turns out that life underground is boring. Like they they have gone to. They have no porn. They have. I don't know that they have no porn, <laughs> but they've gone to great lengths to recreate a very specific artificial kind of America that oh, that like, I would say um, is like a it's like a fakey 1940s kind of what's that town in Disney World uh Tomorrowland no the the place celebration I don't know that's that a cool like and 19- gang song is that what you're thinking of no <laughs> I'm, I mean I'm always thinking about that song but I'm always uh, celebrating good times <laughs> Come on. Come on. <laughs> Come on. Uh, no, there's like that town in, in Florida where a bunch of the Disney people worked, and it's called Celebration. It's like a Stepford town. It's like modeled after Leave it to Beaver, basically. Sure. All right. So whatever. You you don't know what that is. There's this... I mean, there's this... Cool in the gang. We're fine. There is this passage that I want that, that actually totally recurs that I want that I want to read both times. So the first time Vic comes down to the down under, it's called Topeka. It's named for the burned out city that it is underneath. So seems reasonable. Cool. Um and this this is him describing what he's seeing the first time that he's seeing okay. it. Is uh stretched away in front of me, twenty miles to the dim shining horizon of tin can metal where the wall behind me curved and curved and curved till it made one smooth encircling circuit and came back around around to where I stood staring at it. I was down to the bottom of a big metal tube that stretched up to a ceiling an eighth of a mile overhead, twenty miles across. And at the bottom of that tin can, someone had built a town that looked for all the world like a photo out of one of the waterlogged books in the library on the surface. I'd seen a town like this in the books, just like this. Neat little houses and curvy little streets and trim lawns and a business section and everything else that a Topeka would have. Um, let's see. Uh, people grow grass. I don't know. There must be some kind of artificial sunlight or something. Uh, people were all over the place, sitting in rockers on their front porches, raking their lawns, hanging around the gas station, sticking pennies in gumball machines, painting a white stripe down the middle of the road, selling newspapers on a corner, listening to an upa band on a shell in a park, playing hopscotch and pussy in the corner, which I don't know what that is. Polishing a fire engine, no sitting on benches, reading, washing windows, pruning bushes, tipping hats to ladies, collecting milk bottles and wire carrying racks, grooming horses, throwing a stick for a dog to retrieve, diving into a communal swimming pool, chalking vegetable prices on a slate outside a grocery, walking hand in hand with a girl, all of them watching me go past on that metal cuss word. Can't say the cuss word. Okay. Uh, there, it's a robot that, that captures him. Okay. And so after he's been captured, the the people say, "Okay, you're going to you're going to be our stud and you have to live down here." And this is him. This is him living in Topeka for a week. Uh so I spent some time in Topeka getting to know the folks, seeing what they did, how they lived. It was nice, real nice. They rocked in rockers on the front porches. They raked their lawns. They hung around the gas station. They sucked pennies in gumball machines. They painted white stripes down the middle of the road. They sold newspapers on the corners. They listened to oopa bands in a shell in the park. They played hopscotch and pussy in the corner. They polished fire engines. They sat on benches reading. They washed windows and prune bushes. They tipped their hats to ladies. They collected milk bottles and wire carrying racks. They groomed horses and threw sticks for their dogs to retrieve. They dove into the communal swimming pool. They chalked vegetable prices on a slate outside the grocery. They walked hand hand with some of the ugliest chicks i've ever seen and they bored the ass off of me inside a week i was ready to scream 
Okay. And it was just, it's that exact passage is, is repeated kind of twice. And I think it speaks to, it's, it's something that's alluded to a little bit earlier is that the people who live down here decided they wanted to live a certain kind of life and I didn't want it to progress. They just uh-huh. wanted, they just wanted stasis because they not like progression eventually leads to what destroyed the world above them in the first place. In, okay, that's interesting. Yeah, and so even I mean, even though life on the surface is obviously terrible, he this sort of artificial life is something that he considers even worse. I guess. Yeah, and that's interesting because I know Ellison is anti-war as much as he's anti-anything, um, or for anything. Who knows? He is very pro Harlan Ellison. That's yeah, all. That, well, that's pretty know. much all that I know. <laughs> we know that much. Uh, I find it interesting that you know, as you were talking about the earlier part of the story up until this passage, it's very much, I'm getting a sense of like, this is, you know, I can make a character who's as depraved as I want because this came out of terribleness. Like it came out of the conflict that led to the world war three. And this is what I see the world doing as I'm writing this speculative fiction story. But then the other half of the coin is not portrayed as an answer. I, I suppose yeah. Right. He if, says if the you, story itself is kind of judging this town and saying, "Yeah, it, it really is." And and this is him a little bit later talking about the people interacting with each other. Um, Christ, you could puke from the lying, hypocritical crap they called civility. Hello, Mister This, and hello, Mrs. That, and how are you? And how is little Janie? And how is business? Are you going to the sodality meeting Thursday? And I started gibbering in my room at the boarding house. Oh no. The clean, sweet, neat, lovely way they lived was enough to kill a guy. No wonder the men couldn't get it up and make babies that had balls instead of slots. Oh, whoa. This dude, I can't, it's hard to read anything without getting into some dirty language because he... There, There's no such thing as like political correctness, I guess. Not, yeah, and not in the apocalypse. Nope. So how's it go for him? So he, you know, he does this for a week. His the first girl he's supposed to have sex with is Quilla June. They do have some weird kind of connection, which is foreshadowed by the fact that he wanted to talk to her before he had sex with her. Okay. Um, and so they decide that they, they are going to escape. And she, I don't know. They they'd say that they love each other, but I don't know that. I don't, that might I mean, not be what obvious, that is. Obvious, yeah. As as we'll see later, that's probably not what that is. So they basically shoot their way out of town. Oh man, um, Quilla June is shooting down townspeople with a gun. Like she's one gets the feeling that she didn't particularly care for this repressed existence either. Okay, so they escape. I mean, it, it should be said that while uh, Vic was down here, blood blood had not followed him. Okay, he said he would he say. would sit and wait for a while because you know he he cares about Vic in his way and and like needs him, and so he said I you know I'll I'll stay up here and I'll wait, but not forever. So after about a week, they get back up to the top. Blood is still up there, but because he can't really hunt for himself, he is in a bad way. Mm-hmm. Um, they can't go back to the town they were just in because Vic, like they know Vic and Blood 
kill yeah, some course. people and then they they would be killed on sight. They can't go forward because blood isn't strong enough. And so I want to go to the end of this because it's really I okay. don't know. It's not great. Um okay, so this is this is them like Quilla June just wants to leave without without blood. And she said, he says, she got a pouty look on her face. If you love me, you'll come on. I couldn't make it alone out there without him. I knew it. If I loved her, she asked me in the boiler, do you know what love is? It was a small fire, not nearly big enough for any rover pack to spot from the outskirts of the city. No smoke. And after blood had eaten his fill, I carried him to the air duct a mile away, and we spent the night inside on a little ledge. I held him all night. He slept good. In the morning, I fixed him up pretty good. He'd make it. He was strong. He ate again. There was plenty left from the night before. I didn't eat. I wasn't hungry. We started off across the blast wasteland that morning. We'd find another city and make it. We had to move slow because blood was still limping. It took a long time before I stopped hearing her calling in my head, asking me, asking me, do you know what love is? Sure. I know. A boy loves his dog. So I don't, having not read the story, what do you think? What do you, I know what, ha- what do you mean? What do I think? What do you think happened? I know what happened. What do you know happened? I know with my heart of hearts that I don't like this is how this ends because the dog ate that girl. Yeah. What? Yeah. I don't like. I also don't like that this is the part of the story we're talking about while you pet your cat. I don't like this <laughs> He's at very, all. He just jumped up on the desk. <laughs> oh my god! Bye, Newman. <laughs> <laughs> He's off to go eat a person. Ugh, I wouldn't kill a person for him. He's terrible. <laughs> oh, cool story. Yeah, cool story. And oh, that. <laughs> I I liked the way the story was written. I enjoyed reading this story because he he does a good job doling out details about the society. He. I don't know. Like it's 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 engaging and he does a good job building the fiction. And mm-hmm. of he does a pretty good job of making you want things for this character. Like you want you want him to be okay, I guess. And maybe maybe that's just me because that's how I as a reader have been trained to feel about the protagonist of a book whose head I am inside. Yeah, but, it's very it's it's not as often that an author is explicitly asking you to read about someone that you should hate like outright. It's usually challenging you to to want things for people you find yeah, reprehensible and, and the or end, don't identify with. The ends like even it's it's totally sick and twisted and awful, but in oh, no. its way it's it's like he loves the dog. It's a weird. It's a fulfillment it's <laughs> of the rest of the story. How about that? Yeah. Like that's why it is. It is certainly a satisfying from a like close the loop type ending. You know, there's there's two ways for this story to end. The dog is dead, or he and the dog are totally okay with one another. 
Yeah, it doesn't feel doesn't it feels too easy for them all to ride off into the sunset or like the irradiated post-apocalyptic sunset. (laughs) Precisely. And so I guess the it's either. I don't know, it it puts them back at square one in a way. Except he's done all this awful stuff. He'd all, I guess he'd already done. Is it? But there's no he'd indication already, he'd that he's going to do like less awful stuff. He'd already done awful stuff, but there was. I mean, there was clearly a connection between him and Quilla June. Yeah, and I mean, you'd know this if you read the article about what happens in the rest of the story. But I mean, the the story ends like the story as it has been published ends with like him being sort of comatose with the enormity of what he did oh okay so this kicks off worse there is like subsequent stuff but i i i don't know i think i like it better as a as a short story where you don't know like you don't know the the full depth of his feelings about this thing that he did i guess yeah you can totally hear even as you tell it to me, like you can hear in that passage, you can see it in the structure of the rest of the story. Dude wrote his fair share of TV. Mm-hmm. You know, it's particularly like Outer Limits, Twilight Zone style TV pitches, where you've got a tight lens in on a character. The character, you know, there's a very specific, you know, amount of world building. And it boils down to, like, this iconic ending. Right. Right. It's, you know, if it's, and I have all the time in the world when the guy sits on his glasses, like, (laughs) you know, it's that kind of thing. There's, I mean, I want to close because we're, we're at time basically, but I want to close with the final line from the film version of the story, which Ellison hated and still hates. Cool. Uh, the final line of the film is from Blood to Vic, and he says, Well, I'd say she certainly had marvelous judgment, Albert, if not particularly good taste. No way. Stop it. Yeah, it that ends blood, that, with a that stupid, no. crappy pun. And Al- Albert, for reference, is what Blood calls Vic when he wants to annoy him. I assume it's like his full name or something, but... Why did you tell me about that? I had so much respect for this dog. Like, but it's this... the movie version of the dog, and it's not <sighs> a version that was solicited, um, not solicited, endorsed by Harlan Ellison. I suppose it's a separate creative work. So the book, again, ignoring sequels, ignoring the movie, I think the ending is good if disgusting. Well, it's it, yeah, good in the sense that it it is a successful wrap-up to this story yes right and i just had better moral hopes for that dog no morality again is not a thing you should expect from these characters and that that's kind of that's one of the things that keeps you feeling your disgust anew as you <laughs> as you hear more about these characters is you keep trying to impose you as the reader keep trying to impose your morality system on them and it's clear that they don't care about your stupid morality system because it is of no value to them in this in this world <laughs> okay but you keep trying to hope that you know these these 
they must be better because we are following them. And why would we be following them if they weren't better in some way? Yeah, there's a that's a it's dislodging some things in my brain that are like very how you deal with nihilistic views of the world in general, mm-hmm. right? It's it's not just this story. It's like why would we bother to uh improve attempt to improve the world at all when there's such terrible things in it right it's yeah. it's, it's that kind of argument because you impose these good values on the world around you you see potential in the world around you and then there's this like person eating dog who's like <laughs> whatever it doesn't matter <laughs> everyone's gonna die and then live in underground topeka yolo yolo i'm gonna eat this person blood you suck I'm gonna feed this person to my dog it's bacon. No, stop. Oh, no. <laughs> we can't. We got to get out of here. We're making like making cannibal bacon strips jokes. strips jokes. <laughs> if you have a favorite bacon strips commercial that you would like to send us, you can send it to us at overduepod at gmail.com. You can also tweet it at us at twitter.com slash overduepod or you can Facebook it at us at facebook.com slash overdue pod. Craig, if they want to know more about our whole deal, where can they go? They can go to overduepodcast.com. It's a website. It has all of our back episodes. It has links to uh, Amazon links to the books. So you could pick them up if you wanted to read them and, and support both the show and the people who wrote those things. Maybe I don't know how you feel about Harlan Ellison right now, but it's fine. You should feel conflicted. You should feel conflicted. Uh, We've got links to our iTunes and RSS and Stitcher feeds so that you can subscribe to the show if this is your uh, first time listening or, you know, a recent new listener and you want to pledge that part of your smartphone to us, uh, whatever you do. You could also pledge to support us financially through our Patreon campaign over at patreon.com slash overdue pod. There are rewards uh, for people who donate at certain tiers and including bonus episodes coming early. It's it's a pretty cool thing and we appreciate everybody who's doing it so far. You can, oh, back to iTunes. If you are using that platform, please leave us a rating and review. It's a great way for people to find the show. Yeah. And we've we've gotten some really great uh messages from you guys on many various platforms <laughs> over the last week uh danielle olivia stephanie ria um tysophine matthew tony um oswaldo and a whole bunch of other people you've all sent us things this week over facebook or twitter email we really love getting these messages from you guys especially because a lot of them are really sweet and make me feel really good about what it is that we're doing that's because we're like that, helping you, can, you didn't have to ask that as a question no, just, that's like just a real like, thing that you and i talk about just, during the week just in like between I'm, shows. All, I'm like oh man i'm making a difference in somebody's life that's 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 not what i thought that we were going to do with our goofy stupid book podcast. <laughs> well and it certainly couldn't be farther from the world that ellison created so right. it's good to it's good to have warm fuzzy feelings just be you can get a warm fuzzy feeling every day when you wake up and think at least i'm not living in a harlan ellison novel <laughs> <laughs> craig you're reading the book next week what are you reading yeah i'm reading to the lighthouse by virginia wolf i picked it up in maine after going on a lighthouse tour that's cool that's appropriate what yeah, what made you what made you think of that after your lighthouse tour it was on a bookshelf 
in a bookstore in Maine. Okay. And I figured I wanted to... I've started like trying to pick up books for the show at random bookstores that I've been going I've to. I've got a couple so. of those too. Um, yeah, so 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 we'll be getting to those. And um, t- you're going to be getting this on the Monday, like right before our bonus episode for June drops. So enjoy your double shot of Overdue. <laughs> Uh, We will be back with uh, another episode next Monday. Until then, everybody try to be happy.